Uh, so we were in our series. Uh, we just started a series on the parables. And last week we looked at the first series, I mean the first parable, excuse me, of Jesus, and it was the parable of the sower. And if you remember, if, or if you weren't here, let me recap it real quick. The parable of the sower is essentially about Jesus. The whole, it's not just the parable. It's the whole chapter of, of Matthew 13 where he is asking a question and he's making a statement. Be careful how you hear. It's important how you hear the, the parables. It's not necessarily, the parable isn't about what the parable is. The parable is about what the whole conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples at that moment. And then even when he translated it, he's saying, be careful what you hear. And this is the deal. Jesus himself is the seed. God's the sower. Jesus is the seed. God is sowing Jesus into the earth like a seed. Jesus will die. And when he dies and resurrects, he will bring the kingdom of God with him. And Jesus is essentially saying in this, be careful how you hear because most people don't want to hear that. Most people don't want to hear that the king is going to die in order to bring the kingdom. And so what tends to happen is some people have a hard heart, some people have a, a shallow heart, some people have a divided heart, and some people have an open heart to that, to that um, message, the message of the kingdom. And so last week we, we, we kind of hit just lightly on some of these big, heavy kingdom theology stuff, and this week we're going to roll into the next parable. And the next parable is found in Mark chapter four. Um, and it's an extremely short parable. And before I get into that, though, I want to say something about why am I jumping, and it's called the parable of the seed. Um, you might be wondering, why did we jump from Matthew to, to Mark? Or, or, or how are you getting your order? How do you get the order? And there's this interesting book that all seminary students have to drudge through um, called uh, The Synopsis of the Four Gospels. So this scholar, Kurt Olland, took the Greek text and took all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he took them and he harmonized them into one chronological story of Jesus' life. So he believes, with his studies, that this is probably what Jesus' life flowed like if we were to take all the stories from all four um, books and put them together. So it's 361 pages of chronology. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a fun read, but it's fascinating to me because I think Jesus is fascinating. Like, like I want to know him and I want to be in a relationship with him and I want to I know what it would be like to be a disciple and be with him and, and, and to be what it was like to just kind of walk with him in real life. Like a movie, you know what I mean? Like you were just really with him and things were in their order. And so in a series like this, we don't necessarily have to follow Kurt Allen's The Synopsis of the Four Gospels. <laughs> but I kind of think it's a good tool. And if it gets me closer to Jesus and gets me excited about walking with him, I think we will do that. So for this reason, we jump from Matthew's telling of the sower to Mark's telling of the sower. And then right after Mark's telling of the sower is over, Jesus rolls into the seed. In Matthew, he rolls into the weeds, which we'll cover next week, but today we're going to be in Mark, and it's the parable of the seed. What's fascinating is that all three of them are about seeds. So let me just read today's parable. It's really short. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and then he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So what's very fascinating is this is a very short parable, and it's about seeds. So it's very similar to the parable of the sower, but yet it's also very different. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and I can preach the sermon in two minutes and I'll be done. But then we're going to add on other stuff to, add to make it more fun. So, so, the, so the base, the, let me just get to the heart of what this parable is about at the beginning. The parable is about this. 
The kingdom of God. Jesus is preaching on the kingdom of God, right? He's teaching on the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like a man, scatters his seed on the ground, and then he goes back into his house. And he sleeps. And he eats. And he watches Dancing with the Stars. And he reads a novel. And he uh, makes a, a spinach strawberry salad. And he takes the lint out of the dryer. And he calls his mother. And the whole time he's doing this, The seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how because the earth produces it by itself. So the, here's, here's the one-liner of this whole parable. The kingdom of God grows automatically, and you don't know when, and you don't know that it's happening, and you don't know how it happens. It just does. Have you ever planted a seed? You put that seed in the ground. You're like, oh, it's a little bit of seed. Put it in the ground. And you don't know, how, what, you don't know what's going on down in there, <laughs> even if you think you do. Sometimes you, you know you don't, right, because something went wrong. But, but you put it in there, and then it just grows. And then, boom, comes whatever you want, an avocado, spinach, you know, it just comes out. So here's the bottom line of the, of, of the parable. The kingdom of God grows all by itself automatically. In fact, um, this is what it looks like in Greek. If you take the Greek word, the, the, this one sentence, automate hi karpophora. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if I said that right. I'm from Texas. I'm not Greek. Um, but that's what it says in Greek. If you were to take a literal translation, it'd be automatically the land fruit-bearing. So if you were going to do a wooden translation in your Bible, it would say the land is fruit-bearing automatically. And Robert Capon says in his book, that is perhaps the most startling statement in all of the Bible, that God's kingdom grows automatically, and you don't know how and you don't know why. You're pulling the dryer land out of the dryer. <laughs> In the meantime, the kingdom of God grows. Listen to Capon's quote. But then comes one of the most startling statements in all of Scripture. Jesus says, The earth, and all of it, mind you, that's good, bad, and indifferent, the earth bears fruit of itself automatically. Just put the kingdom into the world, he says, in effect. Put it into any kind of world, not only into a world of hotshot responders and spiritual pros, but into a world of sinners, deadbeats, and assorted other poor excuses for humanity, which, interestingly enough, is the only world available anyway. (laughs) And it will come up a perfect kingdom all by itself. Isn't that a great quote? Jesus says, look, the kingdom of God's like this. It's it's just like this. A man puts a seed in the ground, and then he he goes to sleep. And he doesn't know it, but the seed grows by itself automatically. The end. Interesting. So because this is a short parable, and you already know the answer to what it means, I thought this would be a good day to build out some of the things that we've lightly touched on the past two weeks. And that's primarily the first thing. What is the kingdom of God? Because that's something you see a lot in Scripture, but I don't think any of us really know what it is. Because it's a mystery and all, right? And then secondly, what is this thing that I keep mentioning, left-handed power? I've been bringing that up. So all those people who are not here today, they're missing out on the core of the whole rest of the series. What is left-handed power? Or put it another way, how is it automatic? How is the kingdom automatic? And why is Jesus telling us that? Why do we need to know that it's automatic? That doesn't get me in gear. It makes me go back to the dryer lamp, right? If it's automatic, then what do I need to do? Just eat spinach salad. So the first thing we want to do is talk about the kingdom of God. Um... Raise your hand if you have heard a lot about the kingdom of God, and yet you'd probably still be hard-pressed to really truly define it. Anyone? Okay, good. Thank you, Carrie, for being honest, radically honest. What I think is interesting is that the Bible talks about the kingdom of God 
all the time. In fact, if we were to take just the Gospels and just Jesus' words, um, Jesus says the word kingdom of God 14 times in Mark. And by the way, 14, I mean, Mark is half the size of all the other Gospels, so that's not a lot, but it is a lot for Mark. He says it 32 times in Luke, and he says it only two times in John. And again, if you read John, you know John's just a little different, and so he's not ever going to be like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And then Matthew says it four times, the kingdom of God. But then Matthew says 20 times, Matthew seems to prefer the word kingdom of heaven. Um, And most scholars will say, he says the kingdom of heaven 20 times. Most scholars will tell you kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. So when, when, when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven in a parable, we can take that exact same parable in Luke and in Mark, and it says kingdom of God. So most scholars will say kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. But just to, be, just to be thorough, I want you to know the kingdom of heaven, Matthew says 20 times, kingdom of God four times. If they're the same thing, 24 times, okay? So Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven a lot, doesn't he? And I think it's pretty obvious that it's, the, it's central to everything he does. It's what he teaches about. It's what the parables are clearly about. Even some of his miracles, when he does the miracles, he'll say, this happened so that you would know the kingdom of God is here. But here's the interesting thing. The Bible never says, oh, and by the way, this is the kingdom of God. (laughs) The Bible just assumes you already know what it is. It's kind of like Satan. The Bible doesn't say, by the way, Satan is, and he defines them, you know, horns, red, evil tail, and a pitchfork, right? The, The Bible never does that. The Bible just naturally assumes you know who the devil is. Isn't that interesting? So what is this kingdom of heaven thing? Well, let me just pull out a couple of verses. Like I said, there's 32 in Luke. Um, I'm only going to give you five or so. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you know that comes from Matthew because he said heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. Would you think that's pretty important, wouldn't you? Think you got to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. If you don't know what the kingdom of God is, then you don't care. Then why should you be born again? (laughs) Number three, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, this is one of those verses that people love to quote, right? And get scare people with. Again, Matthew, because it says heaven. Um, But if the spirit of God that I cast out, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, Matthew saying God there, has come upon you. This is one of those Miracles where Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit that I'm doing this, then you know the kingdom of God is here or upon you. Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Luke, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says when he he institutes the Lord's Supper, You guys do this as often as you gather, but I will never do it until the kingdom of God comes. Interesting. Again, don't you see how important this stuff is, kingdom of God? And yet, I don't think think most of us understand it. Last verse. Um, Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So this thing called the kingdom of God has been being prepared from the foundations of the world. And one day, hopefully we are the good guys in this story, will be inheriting it. So it seems to me that it's important that we spend some time on the kingdom of God. What is it, Mike? Pray tell. Um, in a nutshell, I would say the kingdom of God is simply God's reign on the earth. God is ruling over all the things on this earth. And that is essentially what the Bible is about. God is reigning on this earth. Um, that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this. Thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want your kingdom and your will to be done on earth. I want you to reign on this earth. John, the apostle, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he said he saw God's city, God's kingdom, coming down out, or the new Jerusalem, he called it, coming down out of heaven and landing on the earth. So it is about God's reign on this earth. That's the kingdom of God in a nutshell. Let me just say this real quick. I think sometimes when we think of heaven, we think of there, right? Sweet home up in heaven. (laughs) Another reason why I hate that song. (laughs) The first reason is because they hijacked it from a really good band that had a really good song, right? And then the second reason is it's theologically incorrect. We're not waiting for a sweet home up in heaven, sweet by and by. I can't wait to get on out of here, right? We often think of God's kingdom, God's heavenly things as being somewhere far away. And here's what Capon says. The Bible is not about someplace else called heaven, nor about somebody else at a distance called God. Rather, it is about this place here in all of its thisness and placiness, and about the intimate and immediate Holy One at no distance from us at all who moves mysteriously to make creation true to both itself and to Him. It's a powerful quote. God is not, we, we tend to think that God's up there and heaven is up there and one day in the sweet by and by we'll just all go home. We're just a passing through this old land. But really what it is, is God created this world. God loves the world, right? For God so loved the world. And he is reconciling this place back to himself. This is the way he made it and it's gone awry, but he's bringing it back. That's why in Colossians it says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile to himself God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God is redeeming and reconciling all things to be back to the original state that's true to the way he originally made it and true to himself. By the way, that's another fabulous reason why we have the word culture in our mission statement. Because we believe, I believe, that we are not leaving this place to go home to heaven, but that God is coming here, the kingdom is coming here, and this place is going to be redeemed. The culture and the world is not bad, it's good. God loves it and he's redeeming it and re reconciling it, reconciling it. (laughs) That's what he's doing. The Bible is concerned with perfecting of what God has made, not with the trashing of it, with the resurrection of its native harmonies and orders, not with the replacement of them by something alien. God's not saying, can't wait to get you out of here so you can go really, so you can really be be at home. And then what do we know about that place anyway? Nothing. So what, what are we forced to say? Streets of gold, pearly gates, clouds and harps, wings. That's all we know. (laughs) <laughs> and what Capon says in his book I thought was interesting Christians over and over and over again are just we fall into this temptation to think of heaven and God's kingdom as being up in the sky even though the Bible over and over and over and over again is telling us it's right here Jesus says the kingdom is here the kingdom is upon you the kingdom is in the earth planted as the seed in the earth it's here consider this for a second just to kind of bring this home for you In the Old Testament, the principal difference between the gods of the heathen and the God who, as Yahweh, manifested himself to Israel was that while the pagan gods occupied themselves cheaply up there, Yahweh showed his power principally down here on the stage of history. 
We're always thinking of God as being up there in the sky, but God is always coming down here, even in the Old Testament, right? Tabernacle, he tabernacled with us. And he was with us with the pillar of the fire and the pillar of the cloud. And then he's always with us. He's here. And then he's promising us one day I will literally be with you. And then Jesus comes and he's with us. And then he's promising us that he's going to bring this kingdom back down here. We're not abandoning the earth. We're not saying forget this place and its politics. Let's go home to be with Jesus in the sky. So we understand that, right? The kingdom of God is God's reign here on the earth. Where the lion will lay down with the lamb, will take the weapons of war and turn them into plowshares. There will be no war no more. He'll wipe away the tears from every eye. God will be king and every knee and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. And Jesus even says to one time, and you'll be, you'll be rulers over cities. Here's a discussion question. How might your life or actions be different if we focused more on the kingdom of God on the earth rather than the sweet home up in heaven version that we often think of? Like, I have a personal theory that we as Christians sometimes are so out to lunch to most of the world because we think this place is a bus stop, you know what I mean? And we're actually on our way up to a better place, and y'all need to come with us. The kingdom of God is here. That's the thing that Jesus keeps saying. It's here, it's here, it's here on earth as it is in heaven. But then you may say, okay, so it's here, but it's not yet here, clearly, right? And this is what scholars, theologians would say is the already not yet of, 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 our, of our existence. We are already the righteousness of God, right? Because Jesus died and his blood paid over our sins, we are already made righteous. And yet we are also very not righteous, <laughs> very unrighteous, am I, am I right? Luther said we are simultaneously justified yet sinful. So, so yes, we are already made righteous, but we're at the same time sinful. In the Old Testament, he says, I promise I'm going to give you a new heart. Take away the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. We've already gotten that, and yet my heart is still very hard. <laughs> I've already gotten the Holy Spirit. I already have a conscience that tells me, hey, that was wrong. But at the same time, I'm also very selfish, and I'm very sinful, and I'm very tempted. You know, So we haven't, we've gotten it, but not yet all of it. And the kingdom is here, and yet it's not all the way here. It's the already, not yet. And so that's important that we understand that when Jesus is telling these parables, he's saying it's here. And, and then you may be asking, but why isn't, why isn't it fully here? Because... God's got this plan that's coming out. It's coming, and, and you, you, don't, you don't know how. It just will come. It's going to grow by itself. All right, so the next thing we have to do is now move on and ask this next question. So how's God going to bring about this kingdom? Fully, the already and yet now, you know what I mean, kingdom. And the way he's going to do it, is he says, is automatically. <laughs> and what, is God, what does Jesus mean by that? What does he want us to know? Well, we've been talking about this thing called the mystery, the hidden mystery. And last week I asked the question, if God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and his ultimate goal is to bring his kingdom or to bring his city, to bring the holy city to the new Jerusalem, then why doesn't he just get on with the job? Why doesn't he just knock some heads together and put all the bad guys under a big flat rock and do it? Get her done already. What are we waiting on? We want him to, don't we? Bring it, as we want to say. But he doesn't. In fact, sometimes it seems as if he's doing the opposite, doesn't it? It does. And so last week I gave the short answer to that question, which is God has decided to take kind of a hands-off approach and left you hanging. And this week I want to give the long answer to the question. So here's the long answer. Why doesn't God do that? Well, there was a time, you can imagine, in the Bible where God did do that. Do you remember? There was a time where God did knock all the heads together and put everyone under a big flat rock. Well, it wasn't a rock. It was an ocean, if you will. You might remember the story of a man named Noah and the great flood. 
And he did it. He said, I'm tired of all the bad guys. I'm going to knock the heads together, and I'm going to flood them all. Everyone's going to die except for my chosen one. And now I can start my own new city, my great, good, holy city. The new Jerusalem is going to be all. He, he, could have, he did it, right? He did it. Straight line, right-handed power. God said, it's over. I'm starting all over. And then at the end of the story, what does God say? You almost get the sense that God had some remorse. And God said, I'm not going to do that ever again. I'm not going to do anything like that ever again. And the Bible says he hung his bow in the clouds. Um, Robert Capon says, he says that his answer to the evil that keeps the world from becoming the city of God will not involve direct intervention on behalf of the city. For now, God's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to directly intervene in order to make the city. Instead, he makes a covenant of non-intervention with the world, and he sets his bow on the clouds. And Capon goes on to say that could be a symbolic word picture of God simply hanging his weapons on the wall. You know, he put his bow on the clouds. No longer am I going to get you to make you do what I want you to do. I'm going to stop using right-handed, straight-line force and power. Instead, I'm going to do a non-intervention. I'm going to be a non-interventionist. And isn't it true? Don't you see that God does it like that now? It's like he always is just kind of not... We don't see God's hand coming down and parting the Red Sea and destroying the enemies and screaming down at us. There's always this he moves in mysterious ways kind of a thing. You don't even know he's there until it's over. And you're like, oh, he was there. <laughs> God has decidedly not to use straight line power, but to use um, um, curved line power. Not direct power, but, but indirect power. Okay, but so after that is over, Noah, you know, flood, starting all over. God's goal is still about his city, though. And he communicates that to Abraham. He meets Abraham, says, I want you to be, um, your people are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and we're going to have the holy city. We're going to have the city of God. And ironically, it's hidden, mysterious, curved line thing. Abraham's as good as dead, on the verge of extinction. He's over 100 years, or he's 80 years old, and he and his wife can't have children. They've tried. So how, is, how am I going to be the people? Sand in the sea, right? As many as the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky, you will have children, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. It just seems like God's doing the opposite thing that he, that he wants to do. You picked the wrong guy. <laughs> But then he has a kid, right? And that kid has a kid, has a kid, has a kid, has a kid. And now you've got the people of God, the chosen race, Israel, God's people. But yet, again, mysterious, curved, indirect stuff, those people spend an inordinate amount of time in slavery. And then wandering, 400 years, wandering in the desert, you know? It's like if God wants to build his city, he could have done it by now. What's he doing? Thousands of years in slavery, 400 years wandering in the wilderness. Then when they finally do get a piece of real estate to build that city, they don't really hold on to it for very long, do they? People are always taking it from them. They're always going back into slavery. And you get the sense that God is just not getting the job done. And then finally the people get mad and say, we want a king. We want a kingdom. God says, no, 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 my kingdom is coming. No, 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 we want the kingdom now. Okay, fine, we'll give you a king. So Israel has a couple of kings, and of course the famous one being David. And then comes down and he makes promises and covenant with David, just like he did with Abraham. I'm going to have a kingdom. And I promise you that one of your descendants will be on that throne. And of that throne, there shall be no end. It's called the Davidic covenant. And we know who that descendant is, right? Jesus. So we can skip ahead. We get to Jesus. 
Jesus comes, and he comes to Jerusalem as a king, riding on a donkey. They're singing, King of the Jews, Hosanna. Here he is. He showed up on the scene, right where David had been standing. Jesus is now standing, and he basically declares, I am the king, and I am bringing the kingdom. And listen, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a summary. He announced that he was bringing in the kingdom, and in general, accomplishing once and for all every last eternal purpose he ever had for the world. Isn't that true? That's what the Messiah was supposed to do, bring about everything that God promised. And as Christians, we believe that he did just that. We do believe that he did it. However, at the end of all that doing, he simply disappeared, leaving us, as far as anybody has been able to see in 2,000 years or so since, no apparent city, no effective kingdom able to make the world straighten up and fly right. It seems indirect, hidden, mysterious, not right-handed force. The whole operation began as a mystery, continued as a mystery, came into fruition as a mystery, and to this day continues to function as a mystery. Since Noah, God has evidently had almost no interest in using direct power to fix up the world. So what, do we, what does he use? He uses indirect, curved line, or to borrow a, a line from Martin Luther, left-handed power. So it's not right-handed, squish your enemies. We want right-handed power, right? Come on, God, squish my enemies. Bring justice to the guilty, right? But he does this left-handed, hidden, mysterious, backwards kind of a thing, and then we realize, oh, finally, I see it now. God works in mysterious ways. That's what we say. So let's talk about straight-line power for a second. Everything in the world is done by straight-line power, isn't it? It's the American way. The only way to get things done is to get things done. <laughs> you gotta use your right, you gotta straight line, direct power. You wanna get off the couch, then get off the couch. You wanna, you wanna, you wanna clean the house, clean the house. It's not gonna clean itself, right? It's direct line power. It's the only way to get things done. Indeed, Capen says, straight line power, that is, use the force you need to get the result you want. Can you hear this? Use the force you need to get what you want is responsible for everything that happens in the world. It's true. Everything that happens today happens because someone uses straight line power. And the beauty of it is that it works. From removing the dust with a cloth to removing your enemy with the 45, it achieves its end in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Get her done. That's straight line power. But there's a, there's a limit to straight line power. Here's this gets fascinating. Unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. If you take the view that one of the chief objects in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight line power becomes useless. Right? You want to clean the house? Clean the house. You want to kill your enemy? Kill your enemy. You want to make someone love you? Make them love you. Can't, can you? You want to be in, a, in an effective relationship with someone? Get her done. You can't. It's impossible. So you cannot use straight line power when it comes to relationships. And so, so here's, a, here's an illustration. Let's say you have a child and you want to be in a loving relationship with that child. You have a son. And he sneaks out at night and steals your car. Okay. You're ticked, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to use some straight line force when he gets home. You're going to yell at him, don't you ever do that again or else I will, I took you, I brought you in this world and I'll take you out. Well, what are you going to do if he, what are you going to do if he does it again? He, he, he knows he's not supposed to do it. He does it again. You yell louder, throw a fit, maybe hit the wall. Maybe you beat him. He does it again. You beat him harder. He does it again. You beat him harder. Er? Until you just almost kill him. As you can see, quickly, you, you can't, you just can't. 
And it, it, it runs its course. You run out of hardline power. You can hardline, you can lift weights all you want. You're never going to be able to win. So what do you do? You've got to use left-handed power. And here's this so beautiful to me. At some very early crux in all of that difficult personal relationship, the whole thing will be destroyed unless you, who on any reasonable view should be allowed to use straight-line power, simply refuses to use it. Unless, in other words, you decide that instead of dishing out justifiable pain and punishment, you are willing, quite foolishly, to take a beating yourself. That's what left-handed, curved-line power is. It's actually more powerful when you think about it. You have every right to beat your kid, right? You have every right, you know, it's for his own health. You don't want him running out in the middle of the night in a car and getting in an accident. So you have every right, but at some point you realize that that's not going to work. The only thing that might work there's no guarantee that it will, but the only thing that might work is if you step back and take the beating yourself. And that has something powerful about it, isn't it? It's, it's actually what seems to be the opposite of power actually becomes more powerful than power. Evil can't touch left-handed power. Evil can't touch Jesus saying, I'll take the beating. There, fix that. Isn't it awesome? I think it's beautiful. So like last week, we talked about the birds. The birds ate the seed, thinking that they've thwarted God's plan. And then God says, it's left-handed power, bro. <laughs> you can eat the seed all you want with your straight-line power. But in the end, my left-handed power is going to do this. That bird's going to poop it out. And when that seed falls into the ground, it's still going to grow with built-in fertilizer, mind you. And the, the, the kingdom of God is going to be, you just carried it further for me. Thank you. And when the so-called religious good guys of this biblical story decide they're going to kill Jesus and say, we're done with you, we're going to shut up the so-called king of the Jews, Jesus says, it's, it's not straight line power, bro. <laughs> you know what? I have every right to bring straight line power on you, but instead I'm going to take it myself. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's the way God gets things done, and he does it automatically. So my challenge to us tonight as we break the bread and as we drink the cup that we would remember what true power really, really looks like and how that power changed you and then therefore how can we apply this parable to our own life with automatic kingdom power that's happening in a curved line, left-handed, indirect, mysterious, hidden way. And then can I tell you that next week when we talk about the parable of the weeds, we'll be able to unpack all of this even more in a beautiful way when we see the evil one come in. Right? Because we didn't have an evil one come in this parable. Next week we have evil one. And I want you to see how God or Jesus responds to the evil. Very interesting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are in heaven, but you're also here. We know that you are. We pray for your presence. And the Bible says that when two or more are gathered, you are here with us. And the... Uh, the placement of the bread and the cup also ensures that you are in a real, intimate, koinonia way with us. You're in community with us even now. And as we break this bread and as we drink of this cup, Lord, I pray that you would be in us, that we would sense your presence in our lives and that we would sense the just unbelievable, radical grace and mercy and love that you gave. And in many ways, it feels like weakness but we all must recognize that it is power. I pray, Lord, that we'll confess our sin to you and that we will we'll seek you and know how we can live our lives in such a way on this earth, 
treating it as the gift that it is. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.